Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If any wish to require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, um, What are Biosimilars? Understanding Their Role in Cancer Treatment, Current and Future Perspectives. I have to say this is the first time we've authored this particular program, and we're delighted with your response to it. Um, and this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in this program that we have so many of you on the call today. So we have over 534 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Italy, Ireland, Serbia, and the United Kingdom. So you really are from all over the world, and it's really a credit to you that you're choosing to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program is uh, supported by Pfizer Biosimilars, and we really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we um, have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler, Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler is going to present an overview, definition of biosimilars, the difference between biosimilars and generic drugs, how biosimilars work and their use, examples of biosimilars, and implications of managing the costs of cancer treatment. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Grawler. Well, thank you, Carolyn. Thanks so much. It's a uh, real pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, participate in this program and to be able to introduce the concept of biosimilars. There is a reason why the education of all doctors includes several years of courses in chemistry. All of us as people have a variety of chemical reactions occurring constantly. This is seen in, for example, in digestion and the metabolizing or processing of food, in breathing with the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide as well as the opening of the bronchial or breathing tubes in the lungs, in the use of protein to build up muscle, in the storage of glucose as a source of energy, in reactions in the brain, in the regulation of the heart, in the functioning of the immune system protecting us from many illnesses, in the production of renewable uh, and the renewal of cells that we're all made of, and in innumerable other chemical reactions that occur in us all the time. And of course, biochemistry is the chemistry of life. Knowledge of these reactions and the everyday functioning of the human body is the basis of physiology, is what leads to treatment or therapeutics when the functioning is not quite right. And this knowledge leads to the development of agents or drugs to try to correct abnormal functioning when illness occurs. We do best when we understand how normal functioning occurs, what goes wrong with important pathways and chemical reactions, when we have illness, and how we can correct or enhance proper functioning. And this is true in cancer treatment and supportive care in people with cancer every bit as much. So where do effective drugs come from? Often medicines can be synthesized or constructed in the laboratory because they're chemicals. 
pharmacologists and medicinal chemists are able to produce many medicines in special laboratories to make large amounts of these agents and to do so under the safest and most sterile conditions. These agents can often be totally synthesized or pr produced in the laboratory. This is how so many medicines are made, including those to treat high blood pressure, irregular heart rhythm, pain, depression, and even many cancer, anti-cancer medicines as well. As we have learned more about illness and treatment, often the structures of medicines have become increasingly complex. Since these treatments are based on knowledge of normal biology, the concept of using biological agents or chemicals taken from biological sources has become increasingly common. Biological methods led to the development of modern vaccines, which have done so much for human health, with the eradication of smallpox and nearly of polio, just to use some examples. This approach of using biological sources for making medicines is the field of biopharmaceuticals or biologics. A real breakthrough in biologics occurred later in the 20th century when the technology of recombinant DNA was developed. This has helped make synthetic human insulin, which is a great improvement in the treatment for diabetes. Further refinement in recombinant DNA technology allowed other types of important agents to be produced, such as types of growth hormones that may not be at optimal levels in various conditions in certain people, or in making customized or custom-designed antibodies or monoclonal antibodies to work in important pathways to reverse illness, often seen in such conditions as rheumatoid arthritis, and many of these have been truly breakthrough approaches. And of course, special monoclonal antibodies have become routine in the treatment of lymphoma and in many types of breast cancer for several years. Newer pathways have been more recently discovered, including issues concerning the immune system, and biologics have been produced that are monoclonal antibodies directed at important mechanisms affecting many more cancers, and uh, such as lung cancer and melanoma recently. Supportive care in cancer, including avoidance of infection and lessening of anemia, also involve the use of biopharmaceuticals, and these agents have been used for quite a few years now as well. So biologicals or biopharmaceuticals are a major part of modern medicine and of modern cancer care, both in fighting cancers directly and in supporting the patient and maintaining quality of life. Now, purely chemical drugs that are wholly synthesized in the laboratory have a very clear structure. When someone invents such a chemical and it is shown to be safe and effective, the individual or company has obtained a patent and therefore the right to sell the agent once it's approved. With a patent, that company has the exclusive right to produce and market that agent over a period of years. Other but different drugs could be made to treat the condition, but only the patent holder can make the very specific drug. When the patent expires, since the structure is known, others can make copies of the drug and they're called generics. Before selling the generic copies, the new company must, in the USA, pass many tests as determined by the FDA or by other regulators in different countries. But remember, 
we said that biologics are increasingly complicated both in their structure and in their production. They're not straightforward chemicals. Producing a highly complex protein or antibody by biologic means is quite different than synthesizing a small molecule medicine. So this is how the concept of biosimilars, or as they're sometimes called, follow-on biologic agents came about. Once the original patent for a biologic agent expires, other companies may produce a biologic product that is nearly identical to the first agent. What is typically important is that the biosimilar performs the same function as the original agent when the agents are carefully tested. Of course, this is a very arduous and detailed process that is uh, monitored and directed by the FDA in the U.S. or by Health Canada in, in Canada or by the EMA in Europe as examples and, and that these regulators have set forward. So biosimilars work in the same way as the original biologic medicine for the same indications. In cancer medicine, the initial example of a biosimilar in the U.S., occurred about two years ago after the expiration of the patent of the very frequently used biologic nupogen, or filgrastin. Filgrastin functions to increase normal white blood cells to prevent infection. Another company then produced a biosimilar called Zarzio, or filgrastin SNDZ. Of course, there are many other biologics used in other disease areas, and many biologics are now used in cancer treatment and supportive care. It is anticipated that this initial agent in, in oncology, the filgrastin biosimilar, is only the beginning, with many other biologics anticipated to go off patent in the not-too-distant future for other companies to become involved and for a large growth in the availability of biosimilars in the U.S. and in many other countries. So with more and more agents that are biosimilars likely to be available very shortly, I think that our discussion of this new, new concept is truly worthwhile. The main advantage that I see at a biosimilars right now, when properly tested and approved, is to introduce competition into the practical aspects of cancer care. I think that this has two immediate positive consequences. First, it can lead to cost savings for all, and second, it can spur an even greater competitive spirit into creating increasingly better treatments. So I will be particularly interested to hear the comments of my colleagues in the following presentations with Dr. Jeff Crawford addressing us next. I will now hand the program back to Dr. Carolyn Messi. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gra. That was outstanding and really just really sets the pace for the whole program today and, and clear to everybody, much more clear what biosimilars are. So thank you for that clarity. And, and, uh, and, uh, and now we will move on to Dr. Crawford. <clears throat> and Dr. Crawford is a, is a George Barth Geller Professor for Research in Cancer, Department of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine, Co-Director, Solid Tumor Therapeutics Program, Duke Cancer Institute. Dr. Crawford will address... Um, clinical trials, how biosimilar research contributes to treatment options, the benefits of biosimilars, current use in the care of people living with cancer, key questions to ask your healthcare team about biosimilars, and current and future perspectives. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Crawford. <laughs> 
Uh, Carolyn, thank you so much. And uh, um, this is a great start by Dr. Grala. I'm, I'm very uh, happy to be on this program and to have a chance to talk with uh, this very large audience about a, a topic that really is uh, quite new to us, uh, new to the healthcare field in the U.S. and new to a lot of the physicians and uh, oncologists you may be seeing. Um, I think uh, Dr. Grala has nicely emphasized how biologics have really revolutionized treatment for many serious conditions, cancer being one of them over the past 20 years, but it's also had a major role in, in diseases like lupus and multiple sclerosis and chronic kidney disease and other inflammatory conditions. So the biologics and the biosimilars we're talking about in cancer, uh, there are similar pathways being developed really for all biologics across all, all areas of medicine currently. So this is cl clearly a, uh, a new era. Um, as Dr. Rala pointed out, the, a biosimilar is a, a biologic agent that is highly similar to the initial reference product, uh, but it can't be totally identical. So uh, the development path is quite different than it is with the original reference product or uh, with the generic product, because the goal is to show that since it can't be totally identical, it's very important at all steps in the, the development process to be sure that there's no clinically meaningful differences in either the safety, the purity, uh, or the potency of the biosimilar compared to the initial originator molecule. Uh, and that's what a lot of the clinical trial development is around. If you think about how uh, drugs are developed in general, uh, we've, this is really a paradigm shift for product development. If we look at the originator molecules that are developed, there's work on molecular characterization, preclinical work, and then uh, classically, we have these different stages of clinical trials from phase one to phase two to phase three, uh, ultimately approval, and then post-marketing surveillance. So basically, at every step, you can think about the research expanding uh, from the preclinical to the different clinical steps. In a biosimilar situation, the research development is really almost the opposite. So if you think of the uh, this as a pyramid, the pyramid would be broadest at the beginning and taper as one goes up so that the main emphasis is on the molecular characterization at all different levels to really prove to the people developing it as well as to the FDA that, in fact, this biologic agent is very biosimilar to the original in terms of purity, in terms of its uh, immunogenicity, the chance of developing an antibody to it, in terms of its structure and function. Uh, all that is really done at very early stages uh, in preclinical work. Uh, and then very importantly, one has to show that the way the body handles this biosimilar is very similar to the original biologic. And that's done through what we call pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, where one can look at the blood levels of the biosimilar uh, and can look at some functional effect. Uh, and again, showing that that's quite similar, almost identical to the original molecule. Uh, immunogenicity tests I mentioned are done. Uh, and then the clinical development is actually uh, the smallest piece of its development because by then, at each step along the way, uh, these drugs are developed in parallel with the FDA. And so the FDA has to say, yes, you have enough information to move to the next step. But at the clinical level, it's really a proof of principle to show that in a limited number of clinical studies, one can show that the agent uh, being evaluated as a biosimilar functions as the originator molecule does in one indication. And so with that, um, 
that package can then be brought forth to the FDA or uh, in the case of uh, regulatory agencies in Europe, Europe to the EMA or others uh, for a review. And that review process is really based on uh, what's called the totality of evidence. They look at all the preclinical work, they look at what's done along the way, and then they look to make sure that the clinical signal um, from safety and efficacy looks very similar to the originator molecule. Um, so that that's the process for for clinical trial development. Uh, and what's interesting about this, uh, particularly from my perspective, is that when it, an agent gets approved in one use, it may be uh, ultimately getting approved in many other uses. That takes different clinical trials in different settings. So for the molecule that uh, was mentioned uh, by Dr. Gralla, Philgrastum SNDZ, this white blood cell stimulator, um, it was developed uh, based on the originator molecule of Philgrastum or Nupigen. Well, Nupigen uh, got an initial approval to help reverse uh, the neutropenia or low white blood count of chemotherapy, but subsequently it was approved for acute leukemia, for bone marrow transplant, for uh, peripheral blood progenitor cells, and in patients with severe chronic neutropenia. Every one of those indications took a different uh, study or several studies to convince uh, the FDA and regulatory authorities that the agent worked in all those different indications. With a biosimilar, there's a process called extrapolation, where what happens is the molecule uh, only needs to be tested in one uh, representative indication, and if the um, preclinical data suggests that there's similarity and one would expect the same mechanism and same effect, one can extrapolate to those other indications. So, in fact, that's exactly what happened with uh, Philgrastum SNDZ or Zarzio. They did a study in breast cancer patients with chemotherapy showing similar benefit to uh, the originator molecule Nupigen, but when it came to the FDA and a re review panel, it was granted approval to all the indications that the originator molecule has. So this is um, uh, quite exciting because what it allows development to do is not to have to reproduce every single clinical trial over and over again, and that leads to huge cost saving in the development of these agents that hopefully gets passed on to uh, patients and uh, payers in terms of reduced costs for these subsequent generation uh, biosimilars that are available. So currently the only agent available in cancer is this um, Philgrastum SNDZ, but there are a host of agents currently under development. Uh, as Dr. Grala mentioned, there are other supportive care agents uh, in, the, in the red cell slash anemia area being developed. Um, and then there's this whole complex of therapeutic proteins being developed, where these are largely antibodies that are being developed to look at uh, and treat, for example, breast cancer for women that have HER2 positive breast cancer, Herceptin is an antibody that's been used for a long period of time with great success in both the curative setting and the adjuvant setting as well as in the metastatic setting. Uh, and then there are other agents like Bevacizumab or Avastin, which is uh, used in conjunction with chemotherapy in lung cancer and some other settings. There's Rituximab, which is an antibody to uh, CD20, which is used in lymphoma and a, a variety of other areas, and a drug cetuximab, which is an antibody to EGFR. So those are all the originator molecules, but there is in development now 
um, multiple agents that are biosimilar to those agents. And some of these are in early preclinical development, some are in very advanced clinical uh, testing, and we'll be seeing those come forward to the uh, FDA, I think in this year and the next year for at least a few of these. So I think it's important for us to really be aware that, that this is happening, um, and it's important for patients to understand that uh, in their discussion with, with their oncologist, there may be times when they'll be getting the originator molecule and times that they may be offered a biosimilar. The potential advantages, as Dr. Grala mentioned, will largely be around cost. We don't expect these agents to be uh, necessarily better, whether we think they're similar, but we don't expect them to be better than the originator molecule. Uh, so it, it, it's a cost benefit. It's also competition in the marketplace leads to more research and leads to more investment. And so we may see uh, new indications or new benefits coming from this broader field of, of study with biosimilars. Uh, I think the other thing to be, to be said about this is that some of these changes, and I'm quite interested to hear our pharmacist address, is some of these decisions in terms of what agents are going to be used will be made at the level of the pharmacy. Um, so it'll be very important for the oncologist to know what products are being used, for the patients to know, um, and for there to be a trust in, uh, in the system that this is being done uh, in a very safe uh, and uh, well-studied way. So I think the um, the questions you'd, you'd ask your providers, am I getting the originator molecule? Am I getting something different? And is there enough evidence to, to show benefit? That would certainly be important to, to talk with them about. Um, I think there will be some uh, interesting changes as we look at this. The, the bar for supportive care agents might be a little bit lower. The, the, for example, the white cell stimulator and red cell uh, factors, because one can monitor the red count and the white count, and kind of see the effects immediately. It's a little bit more difficult when you're looking at a therapeutic antibody to know, is that having the same effect on the cancer or lymphoma that the originator molecule would be? So it's going to take um, not only the preclinical data, but I think a, a strong clinical database uh, for us all to feel comfortable about that before those drugs become available. And I think the, uh, the current and future perspectives, just uh, in closing, I think uh, will be education, will be very important for um, the physicians to understand uh, this whole development process in detail, for those judging which agents should be approved and on what basis for, for them to understand this. And then, of course, for the public to understand that they're not getting uh, an inferior product, they're getting a product that's well-tested well and well-validated, um, and that uh, a lot of effort has gone into those studies. And I think we'll see... Um, over the next five years, approval of these uh, agents across all the major biologic classes in cancer. So, uh, Carolyn, with that, I'll turn it back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Crawford. That was outstanding as well and just really uh, incredibly informative and, and also good for people to understand some of the questions they may want to ask their healthcare team and understanding the benefits of biosimilars. So thank you so much. Um, and I know there were questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Lisa Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a pharmacist, and she is Pharmacy Program Coordinator, PGY2 Oncology Residency Program Director, Banner MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Thompson is going to address for all of you the role of your pharmacist, 
the important questions to ask your pharmacist about biosimilars and how your pharmacist may assist you in a timely refilling of your prescriptions. So it's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Thompson. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for inviting me to speak today. Um, so like she said, I am a pharmacist, and I have specialized in oncology over the many um, years that I've been practicing, and I work directly with the healthcare team um, in an outpatient cancer center. So I do know a good amount about chemotherapy agents um, and the emerging market of biosimilars, um, and often talk to my patients about um, how these medications work, um, advantages and disadvantages of different medications, um, and how to take those medications or, or utilize those medications if they're an injectable item. So I hope that I can help you better understand today uh, the role of your pharmacist in your cancer treatment journey. Um, the pharmacist is considered one of the most accessible healthcare providers, um, and when you think about that, that's because we're located in a lot of different areas. Um, you might think of your, you know, typical pharmacist as that who's located in your retail pharmacies. Um, we have specialty pharmacies as well and mail order pharmacists. Um, some specialty pharmacies um, can help with financial resources for you as well. Um, that's something we offer here at our facility where when patients run into um, financial troubles, we do have um, options that the pharmacy can sometimes do to, to help and some resources to help bring down costs, which is greatly um, advantageous to patients. And also something that ties in with biosimilars, as we started to allude to earlier, is that biosimilars sometimes um, are less expensive than our traditional um, agents. When we start to look at them, it helps um, create competition within the market and brings down costs. Um, likewise, some pharmacists and some pharmacies um, have programs to help you monitor your side effects and monitor your refills as well to make sure that you're getting the most um, out of these medications so that you can report back to your physician and your healthcare team how you're responding to them, um, what side effects you might be having, um, and also keeping track of when you might need those refills so we make sure that you don't um, miss any of your doses. Um, additionally, the pharmacy may call you to see how you're doing, um, offer advice and collaboration with your team, um, and make recommendations to help you manage um, mild side effects as well. Um, you can always call um, your cancer treatment center when you're in doubt or if you have questions, um, or your pharmacist as well can be an accessible resource, um, maybe after hours um, or in the evenings and things like that as well. Um, pharmacists are also located um, in hospitals and clinics as well, which you may not always think of. Um, as we talked about earlier, um, currently biosimilars are, are mainly injectable agents. We really only have one on the market right now, as we've talked about, um, that Pegfilgrastum SNDZ, and that is an injectable item. So your pharmacist can help you um, with that medication when it comes to learning about how to actually use that medication or administer that medication to yourself or a loved one. Um, other things that we can help with is that you might notice that, um, for example, the hospital that I work at now, as um, our previous speaker started to talk about, is sometimes um, we have to fill a prescription a certain way or we have to use a certain medication based on um, insurance coverage or policies and practices. So at our um, institution, we now have um, a, a substitution policy that in the majority of our patients, we can substitute the um, original pegfilgrastum for the new biosimilar pegfilgrastum in the majority of our patient populations. Additionally, we've started to run into some items um, with insurance. So if a prescription is going to be um, self or if a patient's going to be self-injecting this prescription at home, they may not be able um, to fill per their insurance that original pegfilgrastum. They have to fill it as the biosimilar agent because of cost. 
Um, and so that's something that we can help facilitate as well um, and help explain to you why you're getting one um, over another. Um, additionally, pharmacist interventions have shown to help improve medication adherence. Um, so it's definitely important to talk to your pharmacist and get them involved in your care when you can. Um, we can be involved in medication management, help simplify your regimens potentially, um, help resolve adverse drug reactions, talk to you about different ways to monitor your side effects and adjusting your therapy as well. Always making sure that you're collaborating with your healthcare team and your primary provider to make sure they know what's going on. We can also help you identify the risks and benefits of your medication and tools to help track them as well. Um, we can also serve as an advocate for you and your family members, um, helping as a liaison between you and your provider, um, and really a great opportunity um, for reinforcement as well. I know um, having family members that have personally dealt with cancer, it's a very overwhelming process. Um, and I have some you know, medical background. Um, I can only imagine if, if I didn't have any um, trying to navigate this world. And so it's important to have somebody there to help you reinforce that information. Hearing it more than once can always be helpful. So whether it be from your physician and then your pharmacist or another member of your healthcare team as your nurse or a social worker, um, always helpful um, to be getting that information multiple times to help you um, remember and reinforce it. Other things that pharmacists participate a lot in is counseling and patient education. Great resource for that. Um, also just kind of helping explain things and helping you gain more comfort. If it's um, tablets that you're taking, we can help simplify um, the regimen by helping you get organized with a dose organizer, uh, making sure that you're taking those at the right time. Um, helping explain whether things should be taken with or without food can be helpful as well. Um, and making sure that you're documenting and noting um, how you're taking these medications and if you've missed any doses, if you've been sick when you take those medications, when, when you start to feel those different side effects coming on, um, and helping coordinate with if it's appropriate to be taking them around certain procedures and things like that as well. So some important questions to ask your pharmacist about um, biosimilars include, you know, what does my insurance cover? Um, oftentimes, if, if you're being switched to a biosimilar or getting one right now, it might be because that's what's covered by your insurance. And in most cases, like we talked about, these agents um, have demonstrated that they work very, very similarly to how the original product um, did or does. And so that way, it's safe to interchange between the two. So that's an important thing to note. Another important question to ask is what's the cost or what's the cost difference between the original agent and the biosimilar? Sometimes that might be a reason to, to pick one over the other. Um, the percentage savings from biosimilars um, is not truly known, again, because we don't have a ton of different agents on the market. Um, and as we talked about earlier, some of them are more complicated to make. It's not like your traditional generics, per se, um, where they're um, pretty quick and easy. Well, I shouldn't say quick and easy, but um, thought to be easy <laughs> to make to some extent. The biosimilars are a little bit more complicated than that, and due to that, their costs um, may be higher than what we typically think of generic drugs as being. So it may not fall into your typical um, categories when you're looking at your insurance coverage, um, but still definitely can represent um, a good um, savings for you potentially. Um, pharmacists can also help um, inform you about the safety and efficacy of the biosimilars and how to use them and can also explain um, you know, the need for the substitution and um, the differences or, or similarities between the brand and the biosimilar product. Um, other things to note is that 
Um, not all pharmacies carry these medications. So again, if you go to your typical corner pharmacy, you may not be able to get that medication there. You may need to go to a specialty pharmacy. Um, and those um, pharmacies also have pharmacists and staff that are more equipped to answer those questions as well. And then um, also another important question to ask your pharmacist is how do I take this medication or how do I use this medication? And lastly, we'll conclude with talking about some points about how to make sure you're filling your prescriptions on time and in a timely manner. When it comes to your oncology care, we want to make sure that you're taking these medications um, just the right way and not missing any doses, because that's the most important thing, um, or one of the most important things, to make sure that your um, care is being executed appropriately. So there are a lot of options for medication reminders. Um, there's a lot of different adherence aids. Um, sometimes the pharmacy may give phone calls, and then there's a lot of computer-based um, and smartphone-based um, technologies as well that you can apply if you want to to help um, remember to take those medications and also remember to refill those medications. Um, so you know whether you use a computer or a tablet or a smartphone, um, sometimes there can be reminders that pop pop up on there or you can also um, search for different apps as well. And for that, there are different medications. If you just go into your smartphone and search medication reminder on the app store, um, there's refill reminders, when to take your medication, and record when to take your medication as well. Um, a lot of them are free. Some of them may have a small fee associated with them. And um, you should just feel free to, to look at those um, and search what might work well for you. There's lots of good options out there, um, so basically you just need to decide what works best for you um, and for your family as well. Some of these apps include the ability to share. So if you have a family member, you can share that app with them, and you can kind of help remind that person as well. So in conclusion, I hope you learned a bit more about the role of the pharmacist in your cancer treatment and helping with medication adherence and biosimilars. Um, I thank you for taking the time to listen to me talk today, and I'll be happy to answer any questions at the end of the presentation. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Thompson. That was really excellent, really, and very helpful for everyone to understand the role of the pharmacist, who's really quite accessible in many of our communities, and so that's really very helpful, and, and thank you for that, that information. And our next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker, and she's um, actually uh, Cancer Care's online support group program coordinator. And Ms. Edlin will address Cancer's free psychosocial and practical services and programs and how support groups may help. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Edlin. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. 
Cancer Care offers face-to-face groups in our local offices in the New York area, as well as telephone and online groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you uh, with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we have learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are here to help. So please do contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. And thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Evelyn. That was really outstanding and excellent. And now we do have time for questions, uh, actually a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Candice to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question at the very end of the call, I'll let you know how to get your questions answered. But well, why don't we just um, bring all the speakers on board and actually, um, and actually, um, Candice, if you could go ahead and give everyone information about a cure for questions while we're revoice checking Dr. Um, Crawford, and um, uh, that would be great. Okay. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Carol M., your line is now open. Hi. Um, I was wondering, um, you know, I know in dilantin and diabinase were released, one for, di- you know, for seizures and one for uh, a diabetic drug. Uh, th- there were so many complications because the generic houses weren't reproducing the drug adequately enough to prevent seizures or have diabetic problems. Um, is this like a generic or is this not even biosimilar to a generic, which a generic might not have the same bioavailability, but it has the, I mean, a generic should have the same bioavailability, but a lot of times they don't. With the biosimilars, do you have less of a identical thing to the trade drug? I don't know if I'm making sense, but do you know you what are, I mean? No, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm going to ask if Dr. Grawler could address that question. Right. Um, Hi there. Yeah, it's a great question. So, um For a generic to be approved by the FDA, a generic drug, not a biosimilar, a generic drug, uh, generally they have to do excellent pharmacokinetic studies to show that it does have the same bioavailability, okay? So uh, if you get a generic antibiotic, as an example, uh, or an anti-nausea medicine, it has gone through very good testing to show that the uh, pharmacokinetics, that is the absorption and the availability and the peak levels that it reaches in the body and the body's elimination of the drug, is within a very close tolerance the same as the parent originator compound. Okay, so that's required and that's sort of the way that they get those chemicals approved. So those are true generics. 
Um, now, for biosimilars, um, there are even more regulations, but they're a little different. The main thing is that the effect is the same. So the dose could be different and uh, aspects such as, such as that. Now, there are some generic drugs, okay? I'm not talking about biosimilars, but some generic drugs, especially in uh, things that are hormones like thyroid hormone, etc., where the generic can be a little bit different. And um, in, in that case, uh, it's one of the reasons that sometimes, for instance, with thyroid hormone, thyroid replacement hormone, people are advised to stay with the same generic or stay with the same name brand. But as a general rule, for most chemicals, for most small molecules, for most medicines that are generically available, they have excellent uh, uh, bioavailability and characteristics very similar and very closely monitored uh, by the FDA. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, we. And, um, our next question? And our next question comes from Amil S. Your line is now open. Okay, two questions. Are these drugs funded under Medicare? You mentioned that they were funded under insurance companies, but Medicare is separate, and they sometimes deny uh, uh, prescriptions. And do these meds have similar side effects as the original medication? Well, thanks for no answer. Excellent questions. Um, Dr. Grauer, could you address these um, questions? Yeah. So uh, as a general rule, if the drugs are approved, uh, if the parent's drug is approved, and the parent, the originator biosimilar, the, uh, not biosimilar, the originator biological, uh, is approved and available under Medicare, uh, in general, the uh, uh, Medicare will also pay for the biosimilar in the U.S. Um, and uh, uh, so that's number one. And uh, number two is, yes, the side effects are generally very similar to those of the originator uh, compound. Yes, uh, Carolyn, this is Jeff. I would just add, oh, add yeah. to that uh, that um, it, I think payers will clearly want to pay for these because they're going to be less expensive than the originator molecule. That's the, the, whole, the whole concept. So I, I don't think it will be an issue with Medicare coverage. It certainly hasn't been with the person with Phil Grastam Sandoz. And, and yes, uh, we, we expect sort of the same safety profile just like the same efficacy profile, because these are biosimilar. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, our next question is that, um, so um, a question from one of our participants um, online. Um, many patients have indicated to me that some medications for cancer treatment are more expensive than others. Um, and so, um, so the interest in having alternatives, sometimes there aren't alternatives. Um, so I guess Dr. Grawler and Dr. Crawford, if you could comment on that. Surely. Uh, well, you know, right now, uh, as both Dr. Crawford and I mentioned, one of the attractions of biosimilars is that so far they have come in at a lower cost. Now, remember, these are for the identical indications, okay? These are very, very similar drugs, and they are for the identical indication. So we all know of the concerns of the 
great costs of cancer care, all aspects. And so uh, to be able to substantially, hopefully by a good proportion, decrease the cost of care, that should help uh, in, in many ways with, uh, uh, as such. And as Dr. Crawford has carefully said, well, you know, if a good agent, carefully tested, can do the same thing and come in at a lower price, then coverage should be made more easy uh, for for each of us, and uh, and so that clearly uh, is a good thing. And and just to get back to the prior caller's point, obviously or clearly, each one of us as patients, as doctors, nurses, pharmacists, are greatly concerned that any agent that any of us receives or or administered uh, is as safe as can be and as reliable as can be. And the FDA and the other regulators are very concerned with that as well. Excellent. And and Ms. Edlund, do you just want to comment on just the fact that if, because some people are just out there with uh, costs, they're concerned about the role the cancer care can play or other groups in terms of helping with financial costs of care until all of these things are resolved? Absolutely. And and so just to, to add, you know, even with insurance coverage, you know, sometimes people are overwhelmed by the financial expenses of, of treatment co-payments and the insurance expenses as well. Uh, and cancer care does offer some limited financial assistance. Um, we have a, a co-pay foundation that can sometimes assist with treatment expenses, uh, as well as some limited help to assist with transportation, home care, or child care costs. Uh, so, so we do always recommend that people call us to find out what our current funding is and to see if we can possibly uh, offer some assistance for them. So on the interim basis, um, as these are being developed, we do have that. And we're not the only organization, so to some extent we will send the end of the program and information to all of you about um, various resources that are out there to assist um, with the current situation. And then we, and then we, we really... Um, I think what um, we're hearing about is just something that really could potentially make a difference in the cost of care. Is that is that am I saying that correctly, Dr. Um, Dr. Grauer and Dr. Crawford? That um, that that would be the hope in the, moving forward. Yeah, no, Carolyn, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, at the macro level, I mean, there are estimates that, that vary widely on how much biosimilars will impact uh, total healthcare costs, but it's in the order potentially of hundreds of billions of dollars you know, over the next decade. So biologics have been the most rapidly growing segment of uh, healthcare costs and the ability to offer biosimilar agents at hopefully 20 or 30 percent less has a huge impact uh, on healthcare costs going forward. So which it's always been stated that uh, you know, the cost of cancer care is just not sustainable at the current level, and this is one of the big approaches to change that. So that's at the macro level, but at the at the patient level, obviously we all know about copays. We know how paying 5, 10, 20 percent of the total cost is still a huge amount of money. Uh, so if we're able to reduce uh, the original cost by using a biosimilar, that will hopefully be passed on to patients in terms of reduced copays. Excellent. Thank you. And, um and our next question, then. And our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Caroline, again. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Excellent as usual. Um, my eyes were really open today because I took Herceptin 10 years ago, and my question is, is this the original biologic antibody or the biosimilar, and how is this different from the generic one? 
and does a pa- from the generic um, receptant, and does a patient have the choice to get this original biosimilar or to get um, the generic, and what choices do we have? It's given to us, and why is it IV only since I received the generic of the herceptin? Thank you. It was 10 years. Thank you, Stephanie. Next, Stephanie, yeah. Dr. Crawford, do you, do you want to address that? Yeah, yeah. so um, the... Um, what, what you you received the originator uh, biologic herceptin because that's the only one currently available. So and I'm glad that was 10 years ago. So you've done very well. That's great. Uh, um, and the, the one that's being evaluated now, are, are, and there's several that are biosimilars, which are being developed to be as similar as possible to herceptin uh, at the preclinical level. And clinical tests are going on now in breast cancer patients to show the clinical benefits are the same. When those agents uh, become approved, uh, then there will be a discussion uh, available at the at all levels, at the payer level, at the patient level, at the provider level, at the pharmacist level, about which agents do we use, what, what agent is best uh, for our population of patients. And cost is certainly one factor. But for patients who are already on uh, the originator biologic, there, is, there isn't uh, going to be a wholesale switch from one agent to another, at least at this point, because that takes a certain level of approval that the FDA hasn't quite figured out yet, and that's something called interchangeability. To get a designation of interchangeability means that um, without asking the patient or the healthcare provider, one could be switched from one agent to another, uh, and they haven't quite figured out what level of evidence they're going to need for that yet. So, in fact, the agents being approved, there is patient choice and healthcare uh, professional choice uh, for the agents currently available. So, you can't be switched in midstream. And I, I certainly would understand from a patient perspective that if you are doing well with Herceptin or uh, whatever agent you might be on, you might not want to st- stop it uh, to switch to something else that you may not have the same confidence or comfort in, even though uh, it's been thoroughly vetted. Um, but those discussions would, right now it's a little theoretic because we don't have those therapeutic uh, molecules available, but when we do, there will be an open discussion about whether you're taking the originator or a a biosimilar, just as there is between the originator uh, medicine and the generic that we have right now. Thank you. Um, And our next question. um, uh, Yes. And our next question comes from Carol M., your line is now open. I'm just curious as to say, for instance, you did get the biosimilar Nupigen and you don't respond well to it. Will they give you the opportunity to go back to the original Nupigen because it could delay your, your, um, you know, your chemotherapy? Would they offer you back the, the Nupigen made by, I guess, Santos or whoever makes it um, if you got better results? Excellent question. Um, so, so, so again, I, I think if they, um, the studies thus far have shown that they're very similar. So most likely, if you didn't get a good response, it probably would not be because the biosimilar uh, filgrassum didn't work as well as the other. But you know, that's um, you know the way to test that would be to switch back and see if there was a difference. And yes, yeah, so there there wouldn't be any particular restriction between the physician and the patient to do that, the hurdles become more uh, potentially at the pharmacy level if you're 
dealing with a pharmacy that only hold, uh, stocks one um, one agent, either the originator or the biosimilar, and potentially it could affect could be affected by the payer. The payer may only approve one or the other. Maybe uh, Dr. Thompson might be able to ad address that uh, that question if that's come up for her or not. Yeah, in my experiences, I've seen that it's more of an insurer or payer issue, um, not so much the pharmacy um, issue where we can usually dispense um, what, what the patient needs. Um, but in that instance, I know um, for one of our patients, we had tried to send the, the brand name medication, um, and we got a bounce back saying that it was denied. Um, patient needs to have failed or tried um, the biosimilar first. Um, so we had sent off that biosimilar for the patient to utilize. Um, hadn't heard that they did not respond well to it, but what I would assume then is if a patient had not um, responded well to it, you would basically just be filling out that paperwork stating, you know, patient had tried the biosimilar, um, you know, didn't tolerate it, it, for whatever reason it didn't work out, and then um, my guess is the insurer would approve it, um, would would kind of be that process for it. So it just might be the matter of having to explain why the brand name is necessary. And to some extent, that's the same for kind of generic medications as well. Um, oftentimes, if a patient needs a generic, sometimes either one, you just have to pay a little bit more for it or just need to explain why it's medically necessary. Excellent. And um, there is a question about the, um, the question, it's the short-acting approved, not the long-acting, is that correct, Dr. Um, Crawford? Is that? Yes. Is yeah. The, the, the uh, we're talking about Nupigen or GCSF or Filgrastim. That's all the, the short-acting or daily, daily administered uh, agent to boost the white count. And so the biosimilar that's currently approved, Zarzio, is in fact the, the same, a very similar molecule. It's a short-acting; has to be given daily. There are biosimilar. Peg filgrastim is a long-acting molecule in development, uh, some of which have been uh, reviewed by the FDA, but none have yet been approved. Uh, but we would anticipate that would happen, too, over the next year or two. And, uh, thank you. And there's another question. It's an excellent it's a two-part question. Um, so please clarify, this is the first question, please clarify if the biosimilar can be developed before the patent expires. Um, so do you want to address that one first, Dr. Crawford, and then I'll... Dr. Grillen might have more information. It certainly can be developed. I think the, uh, but its use, I think, would even with approval, uh, if there's a patent infringement, that would lead to, I think, legal action between the uh, the sponsor of the originator biologic versus the the new one. So I think that, I think the patent life is really the main thing that's dictating when these new agents, new biosimilars are, in fact, going up for approval at the end of the patent life. So I think anything before that would be contested. But uh, Dr. Grala, are you knowledgeable in this area? Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Crawford and I work hard to uh, uh, know about medical oncology. I think patent law we have a little bit more of a problem with. But my, my guess is that the various companies is very sophisticated to develop biosimilars anticipate when a patent will end, and uh, my guess is they can work on it prior to that time, but of course they can't uh, uh, um, have the drug approved uh, uh, before the patent has expired on the originator. Yeah, that was my understanding, too. Thank you for being on the call. <laughs> okay, and then the second part of this question, and this will be the last question, it's the cost and complexity of gaining approval 
for development of biosimilars less than for the original drug, will it create incentive for a pharmaceutical company to just wait for new drugs to be approved, then copy the formula? Well, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that um, that uh, for some companies um, they would, um, you know, uh, uh, they would make a, a particular business out of developing biosimilars. On the other hand, for the originator company who's had exclusivity for a period of time, it's all the more reason since they're going to be losing business on what they originally had to develop something better. And we all applaud that. Uh, every step we can make forward is a terrific one. So that's why I think that both Dr. Crawford and I mentioned in our presentations that uh, we think that this is uh, a way to, to move many of these fields forward. And uh, to me, that's a, uh, while saving money is, is very important with the cost of all medical care and especially cancer care, but moving things forward to better and better uh, approaches is, uh, is the most exciting thing uh, we can think of. That's a really wonderful way. And do you want to add, do you and Dr. Crawford just want to add something to that um, before we end the call? Well, I think Dr. Crawford said, well, I think the other thing to say is that the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are actually very much invested in the biosimilar process. So the companies that had the originator molecules are now developing biosimilars in other areas that they didn't have before. So I think it's becoming a much more dynamic field, and I think that can only help uh, the development of new research and uh, new developments. And it's just a time just to say something about the new research, the clinical trials, the whole process that really really has transformed the treatment of cancer. Can you say something about that? Do you want to comment on that, Dr. Grawa? Well, I mean, you know, we see this now with uh, over the times that Dr. Crawford and I have worked together, which is a very long time, uh, we have seen the accelerating rate of uh, cancer clinical trials and of new treatments coming about, and it's very exciting. And uh, we see uh, treatments for common cancers that uh, um, are in place today that we could not have conceived of just a few years ago. And uh, this quickening of that pace and the true benefits for uh, our many patients is something uh, very exciting. We have a long way to go, but, um, you know, I think that uh, cancer care uh, will work hard to keep everybody informed uh, of, of the really meaningful uh, improvements. Well, thank you. I and I, I would just add to that by saying that uh, we've been talking about biologics and biosimilars, and the, the whole field of uh, immunotherapy falls under this, and so that's been the most rapid advance in the last few years. So I think some of the things we're talking about with biosimilars for these therapeutic agents will come to the field of immunotherapy and immune checkpoint inhibitors in the years to, years to come, and I think that's going to even further accelerate what's happening there. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've done outstanding. I want to thank all of our participants. You really, um, lots of participants on a call on something very new, and so clearly everyone's interested in something very new. And also um, the great questions, actually, um, both online and on the telephone, and also all of you who've been listening. Um, and also, um, you know, uh, it's just amazing to be able to offer a program like this on something that is very new, um, and there, there'll be new things coming down. We'll always try to keep you informed, I think, as Dr. Grala said. 
Um, I do want to remind all of you that if we didn't get to your question, because I know there may still be questions that are waiting to be answered, um, that I always suggest um, just for any medically-based questions about your cancer, its treatment, that you would contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. They actually have information specialists that have a great deal of information for you. And in addition to that, of course, um, you also can contact any of our organizations that we collaborate with on all of these programs. Um, there's just so many of them uh, to mention, but they're all listed, and we will send you, of course, all of that information as resources when you get the evaluation for today's program. Now, in addition to that, I just want to reiterate that you can access, if some of you may wish to access some of the free psychosocial support services that we offer at Cancer Care, both the practical and financial assistance, as well as the opportunity to talk to one of our oncology social workers. And I think Carol, Ms. Adam is an excellent example of just the caring and the expertise that they have. So if you have a question or concern, don't hesitate to call us. And our, that you can call us at 1-800-813-4673. Um, and for our international participants, or for those who prefer to go to the website, it's www.cancercare.org. And um, that is a wonderful way to, get, to pose a question um, and to get your questions um, addressed and answered, or to get some counseling. Again, we have online support groups, and we have counseling services both on the telephone and online as well. So with that all being said, um, as we conclude today, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone. You are now part of our cancer care service programs, and we want you to know that you can contact us at any time, either by phone, by email, um, visiting our website, um, and we're here to help you. And I want to thank you all for your participation today in this program that is quite a pioneering program today, so you can say you listened to this program today, and I'm sure there will be much more about this coming forward. Thank you all, and have a wonderful day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.